Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn more about Dr. Justina Ford, Denver's first African-American female physician. She impacted our community so much, not just delivering babies, but taking care of people from the time they were born until they passed away. Plus, we take a look at the state of Colorado's unemployment system. Those stories and much more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The Colorado Department of Labor and Employment isn't reporting any new unemployment claims this week. The reason? No claim data is available due to the recent deployment of its new online system. The department launched the system on January 10th. It was supposed to be upgraded last April, but the distribution of federal payments due to the coronavirus pandemic contributed to the delayed launch. Colorado unemployment updates will resume next week. And it has now been nearly four weeks since unemployment benefits ended for many Coloradans. A federal pandemic relief bill passed in December with more money to help those who are still unable to find work. But technology and process changes are keeping those dollars from actually getting out there. Here to update us on the state of unemployment and small business relief in Colorado is Tamara Chung. She writes a weekly newsletter for the Colorado Sun that helps guide people through the economic disaster caused by a coronavirus. Tamara, welcome back. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me again. Last time you were telling us about a major upgrade to the state's unemployment system, that was one of the things holding back the payments. The new system went live last week. Um, How well has the upgrade been working out? Well, it looks like the upgrade did fairly well. The Department of Labor reopened the system to regular unemployed people and people have been requesting payments through that system. Was the rollout smooth? So there was a huge chunk of people who were not on regular employment, but as we've talked about in the past, they were on some sort of pandemic unemployment. They could not get through. They could not request a payment. And that's because they the system wasn't ready for them yet. The system was only letting people on regular unemployment in first. So have the bugs kind of been worked out? Well, the thing about all this is people on pandemic unemployment are still waiting. And that's not necessarily because of the new system, although it is slightly related, but it's because the Labor Department has to reprogram in all these new benefits. So because Congress passed the new relief plan so late on December 27th, one day after everyone's benefits ended, the state had to wait for new instructions and they finally got them. And now they're trying to update their system. Well, I want to talk about fraud because that created just a huge disruption for Colorado. Fraud was responsible for a 63% spike in unemployment claims in early January, according to the state. Can you tell us a little more about what that fraud looked like um, and how does the Department of Labor plan to combat it? So over the summer, there was a lot of fraud targeting the pandemic claims. And that's because these are the folks who weren't in Colorado's labor system. They were gig workers who were on contract. They never paid unemployment insurance. So because of the federal relief bills, they were eligible for unemployment benefits for the first time. But that opened up the system to fraudsters who, you know, apparently it's really easy to 
by stolen data. So, you know, if you've ever had your credit card stolen or your ID stolen, you know, your data is probably out there somewhere on the dark web. And these folks would go in, buy volumes of personal data, mix and match personal data and um, file for unemployment. So over the summer, the state added all these anti-fraud triggers, which locked out a lot of those accounts. That meant fewer fraudsters were targeting regular unemployment. So when all the pandemic unemployment ended on December 26th, apparently the fraudsters went after regular unemployment. And that's what caused that 63% spike in early January. There were apparently some victims who reported fraud in their name uh, only to have the unemployment claim go through. What happened there? Right. So the other thing that happened, you know, you have these people filing fraudulent unemployment claims. In many cases, there were actually people on the other end whose data was stolen. And people would find out about this, you know, victims would find out about this if they got a U.S. bank Relia card in the mail. That basically indicated their unemployment benefits were approved. But of course, a lot of these people didn't even know that this had happened. So back then, the state offered a form that people could fill out to flag that account and say, no, you know, I'm a victim. This wasn't me. I never filed for this unemployment. And for a lot of people, they thought, well, that's that. I filed that report. I called up the credit reporting agencies. And then in January, people on unemployment get their 1099 forms because you owe taxes on your unemployment benefits. So victims started getting these forms. I also heard from people who were employed and their employer told them, hey, it looks like you just filed for unemployment. So they would then protest and think that was that. In one case, one woman said it didn't take and apparently the claim got approved. So um, now she lives in California. Wow. <laughs> but I can tell you what happened here. So if, if you think about, you know, 800,000 accounts were flagged for fraud. There's potentially thousands of victims. And at one point, the backlog of people who had filed these reports, you know, there were 30,000 at some point, and this is just in recent weeks. So if you remember, there was the old computer system, and now there's the new computer system. In the old computer system, staff had to take those forms and manually input the claim. So that's why there was such a backup. And that's why if the staff wasn't able to get those claims in to flag certain accounts, those people got Relia cards or those people got 1099 forms. So the state is saying that they know and they actually were trying to suppress all those tax forms from going out, but they just couldn't get to all of them. Tamara Chung is a reporter with the Colorado Sun, and you can find a link to her What's Working column at our website, KUNC.org. Thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Fewer Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week, lowering claims to 900,000. Still, the country's pandemic-induced recession and subsequent job losses have been especially hard on women. As Maggie Mullen reports for KUNC, the December job numbers were especially brutal. Rebecca Travers lives in Casper, Wyoming. Until late last year, the 42-year-old had been working at a nonprofit that helps volunteer organizations across the state. I mean, that was my favorite part of the job was not only helping people, but helping organizations that help people. She says her job felt that much more meaningful during the pandemic when so many in her community needed an extra hand. Service and people have always been really important to me. 
that was something that drove me to go back to school um, at the age of 39 and finish my degree because I wanted to help people. Travers felt really secure in her job, but her organization wasn't immune from the ongoing economic downturn. And in mid-November, she lost her job. I think the first two weeks after I got laid off were definitely the hardest. Travers says it was a mix of emotions, anger, sadness, anxiety about what to do next. She's since been working part-time at a local grocery store. Plus, she says it's helpful that her longtime partner and her 18-year-old son remain employed. But she's still trying to figure out what to do in the long term. It feels like I'm just starting over. The pandemic-induced recession has hit women of color especially hard. 25-year-old Aliyah Gonzalez is Latina and lost her job right at the beginning of the downturn and had to move back in with her parents in Buffalo, Wyoming. It was hard not to be hard on myself about it and not feel like I had done something wrong. Gonzalez had been living in Denver, working as a studio manager at an architecture firm. She says it was the first job she'd landed that actually aligned with her arts degree and what she was interested in doing with her life. Then in April, she got a call from a supervisor just before the lunch hour. She told me at noon I was officially furloughed until the end of April, and that's when they would decide if they still needed me or not. They didn't. So Gonzalez spent most of the summer on unemployment to make ends meet. And I did apply to many jobs, many, many, many jobs, <laughs> uh, while I was waiting to find something. Gonzalez isn't alone either. Latinas have the highest unemployment rate at 9.1 percent, followed by black women at 8.4 percent, while white women have the lowest rate at 5.7 percent. Elise Gold is with the Economic Policy Institute. She says the pandemic didn't necessarily create new problems for working women. It just revealed or magnified disparities that already existed. It really mattered whether or not you had the ability to work from home. Right. So if you have um, a higher paying job, you're more likely to be able to work from home. If you're white, you're more likely to be able to work from home. Um, So you're sheltered from not only the health risks, but the economic shock of job loss. Gould says we also know that the burden of many caretaking responsibilities falls on women disproportionately. So the fact that we now have lots of schooling happening at home is another difficulty. If those mothers have to physically go to work, it's an impossible choice. They have to stay home particularly with their younger children, um, they don't have an option. So they've been pushed out of the labor force in that way. The economic picture for women is a far cry from the beginning of 2020 when gradual gains had been made. For instance, there was a three-month stretch where women held more jobs than men in the U.S. economy. That was only the second time to have happened ever. How soon or if things turn around for women, Gould says it will depend on a few things, like how quickly we get out of this recession and how quickly millions of kids go back to school. Plus, what are elected officials do about it? You know, what happens with policymakers across this country, but notably federal policymakers and what other relief packages they put together to not only provide additional unemployment insurance to those people who have lost their jobs, but also provide more state and local aid uh, to to help in the recovery and really to help people um, make ends meet through this time. That help could be on the way with President Joe Biden's proposed economic recovery package, which is substantial at $1.9 trillion. In the meantime, Aliyah Gonzalez has started working as a temp for the United States Postal Service. For now, it's a good job and it provides me health insurance. Which she says was big on her list during a pandemic. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. 
KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at KUNC.org. And you're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. On Wednesday, Joe Biden set the tone for his presidency with an inaugural speech acknowledging the cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making. It remains to be seen what President Biden will do to address racial inequities on a national level. But the call for racial justice often originates from local communities. For more than a century, the high school in Lamar, Colorado, in the southeastern part of the state, has had a mascot that depicts a stereotypical Native American chief wearing a headdress, and athletic teams are known as the Savages. Today, some current and former Lamar High School students are openly critiquing the racially insensitive school culture and are calling for the school board to make a change. They've organized under the name Lamar Proud, and their work lends community support to long-standing efforts by Native American groups to rethink offensive mascots. Stephanie Davis is with Lamar Proud and graduated from Lamar High School in 2006. Stephanie, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hey, thanks for having me on. You graduated from Lamar High School about 15 years ago. Give us a sense of what you and other students thought of the mascot at the time and how that's changed over the years. I was actually one of those people who was really, really proud of the mascot. And whenever the topics would come up at a high level, I would try to defend our Savages mascot. But I was really involved in school activities. I was in the pep band. And so, you know, I was on the field most games, greeting players with the powwow drumbeat and playing the Savages song from Pocahontas, dressing up for homecoming. I was all in. Like, I was very invested in school spirit and really proud to be a Lamar Savage. I wasn't really exposed to a lot of other thoughts and groups outside of the Lamar community when I was in school there. And it was only once I graduated and became part of a larger community with different voices, different ideas that I personally was able to shift what I was thinking and started to learn that cultural appropriation and turning other cultures into costumes was entirely inappropriate and really demeaning toward those cultures. Take me up to when you started your work with Lamar Proud and really started to get your foot on the gas pedal towards trying to get this changed. This summer, after all of the George Floyd protests and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McCain protests, um, I realized on Independence Day that I hadn't really been doing much personally to work toward racial equality and started thinking about ways I could contribute to that conversation. And I realized that my own high school mascot was one of the bigger problems out there that I felt like I could have a direct impact on in a small way. So I emailed the school board and the superintendent of in July this year, and we were invited to talk during a school working session to address the issue and ask them what steps they'd taken to um, put the 2016 uh, uh, commission into play. And so from there, it just really kicks off. We have an active group of about 200 alumni who are part of the conversation with us, with a smaller group kind of spearheading the efforts to get this mascot changed. You mentioned the commission there. I think what you might be referring to is former Governor John Hickenlooper's commission to study American Indian representation in public schools. And they released that report in 2016. They basically concluded that all schools should eliminate use of Native American mascots. Lamar High clearly did not take that recommendation What have you heard from the school about why they still have it? 
So a lot of what the pushback we get is that they think that a lot of the pressure is coming from outside of Lamar and that it's a community decision rather than something that should be made outside of the community. So one of the efforts that we heard, um, not sure if this will be implemented or not, is that they actually wanted to try to get the mascot onto the local ballot in 2021 and make it a community decision. What sort of insight do you have into why people in Lamar are sort of hesitant to change this? Well, it doesn't help that it's a very, very deeply ingrained part of the community. And in a small town like Lamar, it's not just about people who are going to the school. Like everybody in the community is involved. You have business owners who are sponsoring school sports. You have um, parents. You have people whose whose families have gone to that school for generations. And the mascot's actually been used um, since 1910 is the earliest we were able to find documentation, although town legend and lore kind of has it dating even earlier to that to about 40 years after uh, the Sand Creek Massacre. So it's been used for a very, very long time. And so I think that comes into play with it. People take a lot of pride in it. The community claims to be honoring the Native American community with the mascot. And so I think they're, they're just really hesitant to make that change. So from certain perspectives, they feel that they're honoring Native American heritage who decides whether something is honorable or shameful when it comes to something like representation? I think it should be the community that is being represented. And there have been activists in the American Indian community trying to get these mascots to change nationwide since at least the 60s, trying to say, hey, this isn't who we are. Um, The National Congress of American Indians have actually emailed the school board asking them to uh, change the mascot. So We're definitely not alone in this fight. Let me end this by asking what the campaign looks like now going into 2021. What sort of steps are you looking to take and what sort of things are already in motion? So far, we've done quite a bit. We have a pretty robust digital presence. We have emailed every single business in Lamar asking them to support changing the mascot. And that came out to about 200 businesses there. We are in constant communication with the school board, and at this point, we've also talked to other schools who have a similar issue. So we're trying to reach out beyond just our own town of Lamar. What we're working on has been done off of legwork and research and messaging from the American Indian community. Like what we're trying to do is just kind of amplify those voices because the American Indian community who keeps saying that these mascots need to change are the voices that we're trying to make sure are heard the loudest. Stephanie Davis is a 2006 graduate of Lamar High School, and she is with Lamar Proud, organizing to change the mascot at Lamar High School. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Henry. I appreciate it. Friday marks the 150th birthday of Denver's first African-American female physician. Dr. Justina Ford was born on January 22, 1871. She transcended racial and gender barriers and delivered more than 7,000 babies during her 50-year medical career. Last February, we spoke with Terry Gentry, a volunteer docent at the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver, just ahead of the unveiling of a new mural in the Five Points neighborhood honoring the legacy of Dr. Ford. For people who are not familiar with her name and her work, give us a quick summary. Who was Dr. Justina Ford? Dr. Justina Ford is the first African-American female licensed physician in Colorado. And Dr. Ford attended Herring Medical College in Chicago. 
And so she was a fully accredited physician when she arrived and applied for her medical license in 1902. She was denied membership to the Colorado Medical Society, and having that membership was required to practice in our hospitals. So she set up practice in her home, and the museum is located in her former home at 3091 California Street. It was relocated from 2335 Arapahoe Street in 1984, and at this present site, Mr. Stewart moved the museum into that location in 1988. What inspired Dr. Ford to go into medicine? Dr. Ford's parents were formerly enslaved, and when slavery ended, moved to Illinois. She's the youngest of four children. She would go out with her mother, who was the midwife and nurse, took care of a lot of folks in the area, and Dr. Ford was with her as a child doing all of those things, and I think that inspired her to continue that way of life. So when she graduated high school, she went on to college and then later attended Herring Medical College in Chicago and graduated in 1899. Herring Medical College is a homeopathic college, so it was a very rigorous training, and quite a few people that attended went on to have incredible careers around the country, and they were quite a diverse number of students, so it wasn't limited to a specific group of students. So it was a wonderful place for her to attend. When she came to Colorado, you know, reading about her, she had trouble getting the medical license. She really had two things working against her, being African-American and being a woman. How unusual is it that she set up practice in her home? The fact of the matter is the medical examiner said that he hated to take her money because She had two strikes against her. She was female and colored, the terms of the day. And then the Colorado Medical Society didn't entertain giving her membership at all. So she had a lot of challenges to to reach. And she took over the practice of another physician that was retiring and worked very hard to build up that practice. She's quoted to have said that she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. So she worked nonstop around the clock helping babies come into the world. She was also a pediatrician taking care of those babies once they were here. She was taking care of their family members. So it was a nonstop practice. She, She was very driven and very determined to take care of folks from wherever they hailed from on the planet. And there were folks in our community from all over the world. So she attended the delivery of more than 7,000 babies, more than 37 different nationalities, new in the range of 8 to 11 languages and dialects. Is there a particular story that you've heard about, Dr. Ford, that stands out to you so that, that you could share with our listeners? Oh, there's so many stories, even from my own family. My grandmother was born here in Denver, and Dr. Ford delivered her. My dad, when he was a little boy, had hurt his arm, and my grandmother brought him in to see Dr. Ford so she could take care of him. They weren't sure if it was broken or, or if he had a bad sprain. And and my, my dad was a little bit afraid of her, but uh, after she took care of him, she he thought she was a really cool doctor then. <laughs> There's so many other stories of my parents' friends and relatives and things that were were brought into the world by Dr. Ford. So it's it's like listening to stories about my family. What do you see as her legacy today? Dr. Ford's legacy 
is, I believe it's a celebration of life. And I believe it's a celebration of children and families. And, and giving a, a perspective for other young African-American women and anyone else that is interested in the medical profession to look to her as inspiration for their own careers and for their own direction. She impacted our community so much, not just delivering babies, but taking care of people from the time they were born until they passed away and never, ever concerned about how they were going to pay their bills. And sometimes they had to give her money out of their pay $5 a week, or sometimes they had to get groceries or, or things from their garden, or they'd come over and do some labor at her house just to pay the bill. So her, her primary objective was to take care of folks. And that's something, I think that's a lesson we can learn now is, is first and foremost, take care of people and then figure out the rest. So inspiration, I think she's just an amazing, inspiring person to thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our community and across our country. Terry Gentry is a volunteer docent at the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of her legacy with us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Colorado Edition is produced with help from Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more news from around the state. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.